Welcome to the MacGuffin Man. I'm Alex, and with me, as usual, is James. You can check out our website, themacguffinman.com, to keep up on our most recent podcasts. Uh, last time we talked about Nomadland. Before that was Bad Trip. Before that was The Most Wanted Man. And before that was Game Night. And actually, I think this bears mentioning today, before that was the Parallax View. Um, so yeah, you can check that out, themacguffinman.com. All right, James, uh, we are here today talking about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, 1971 Robert Altman film that um, uh, is a Keith Carradine. Yeah, Keith Carradine. I was listening to him talk in an interview today and well, it was a pre-recorded interview, but uh, I was listening to it today and he talks about how when Altman was bringing him out to work on this movie. Um, he described McCabe and Mrs. Miller as a Western making, they were going to be making a Western with no dust. And at this point in his career, like Robert Altman is coming off of MASH, which was a huge, huge success. And in the interim, he had made the less successful, but um, now pretty well known to people like us, Brewster McCloud and Warren Beatty and Julie Christie were both uh, huge stars at the time. And they all congregated in West Vancouver and made McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, so yeah, here we are. Where do we start? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that phrase. I kept coming across anti-Western, which mm-hmm. um, I think is appropriate. I think the the Western that the dust is appropriate. And I think you and I both like a, a well-done, straightforward Western. And we also like any sort of any anti-anything, you know, just mm-hmm. something that uh, is still a genre film um, that wants to subvert your expectations and do something differently. And this definitely does something differently and um it's still really well regarded and it did not it didn't uh it didn't play out that way immediately for for most people um and so this kind of hits a lot of things for us as far as uh western um Beatty for you with uh, the parallax view <laughs> being somewhat recent and, uh, yeah, i'm not i'm not saying I'm, I'm not a warm Beatty super no, fan. I, I just felt that that uh, since that was the next topic, usually I read like four topics. I figured go to five. Six, four, <laughs> yeah, and so I think we're both just also fascinated by genre. And so anytime someone either plays into it really well or plays against it in um, a compelling, interesting way, it's going to to interest us. And I won't speak for you. We we never talk about our feelings about this, but I'm sensing that you really like this movie. So um, I think it's fair to say that. It's not just that it does something differently, but it does something differently and it does it well. And um, Altman has a style, and I'll be straightforward about not being an Altman expert. We, we've talked about him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has a style that I don't think would work for a straightforward Western. You know, I think you'd have to really kind of go against the things that he is known for. Um, so for him to do this, sort of anti-western western without the dust however you want to you know frame it mm-hmm. um is a really interesting trick and i think it's um definitely not a straightforward western but one that gets across things about the genre we like but also brings some really interesting fresh energy to it yeah absolutely and um so i think just just one thing uh, I think so Stephen Benedict who uh, hosted a podcast that we both like very much is basically a film lecturer um, in his episode about this movie he pushes back on the idea of it being an anti-western because he thinks that classification um, just sort of 
doesn't like does a disservice to the long history of Westerns subverting <laughs> expectations of Westerns. And, and I think that um, because I think it's just more obviously sort of like subverting Western expectations than something like High Noon, which um, to my recollection does a little bit, but is still much more of a classical Western than McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But, um, but what you were saying about Altman and uh, how the things that we know about his style, comparing them to what we know about the Western as a genre, what's the one thing you know about Altman movies is that they sound weird and busy and there's a lot of sounds happening simultaneously. When you think of the soundtrack on a Western movie, it's sparse and you just hear like <laughs> silence for long periods of time, which is you, just... hear, you hear tumbleweed. <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. that's how little is going on in the soundscape. Exactly. And I think that's the most... Um, the most immediate way to describe why uh, why this movie feels different from other westerns because not only is it um, is the audio very busy but it's busy immediately and um, almost to the point where you when it drops out in the last twenty minutes or so which is which has very little. Uh, almost no dialogue um, and very little going on in sound, even with with when Ward or when McCabe is traipsing around in the snow because the sound is so dampened by all of the snow he's walking through. Um, when it gets quiet, it it just sort of it elevates the feeling of of sparseness because um, for the first half of the, the movie, the dialogue is so busy and assaultive, um, or it would have felt assaultive in the early nineteen seventies. It doesn't feel that way to us, but like. Maybe this is how uh, how people in 1971 or this is people in 1971 seeing this movie is how some people felt seeing Uncut Gems a year and a half ago. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yep. And and yeah, it would just be so different going to see what you think is a Western, which you, you know, assuming there are some promotional materials where uh, there's lots of snow present, like it already doesn't look like a Western, you know, um, again, to use that quote, it's there's no dust you know and and so it visually doesn't look like a western damn sure doesn't sound like a western and um warm Beatty doesn't give off western vibes and neither does julie christie really you know so it's just this this weird whole thing that that is just this interesting melange that I, like i can see pieces of other things that have been influenced by it but i don't know that i've ever seen a what is the closest movie to McCabe and Mrs. Miller that you can think of off the top of your head? Yeah, it's uh, the two that I, these are in my head because they're the comparisons I read in an article, but I think they're apt. It's the assassination of Jesse James with a coward, Robert Ford mm -hmm. and Deadwood, which I know is not a movie, but mm -hmm. um, I mean, we still get snow in the assassination of Jesse James with a coward, mm -hmm. Robert Ford, which I think is small, but meaningful. Um, and Deadwood is pretty uh dark and is not um is not really wound up in doing a lot of things that westerns do but i i think you're right to point that out that it's always been it's we we talk about westerns as so simplified and that every movie made from whatever 1898 to 1971 was a very straightforward black hat versus white hat no moral ambiguity <laughs> like it's just dust and shootouts and the female characters don't matter or don't exist and that's an oversimplification for sure and mm. i think that's what you're getting at before so yes um the, the things that this does differently it's not as though no one had ever done them before but it really puts together a lot of these things in 
a compelling way and you know it's the pacific northwest like already you're you know as you said there, there's no dust there's snow um even something as small as that it just puts it in it you're already just sort of on the balls of your feet mm-hmm. by um what you have here yeah and, and then some things really are sort of down the middle and, and you can look at this as this is a mysterious charismatic gunfighter with a mysterious past who walks into town um kind of upends this frontier town that's mm-hmm. not a misrepresentation of this plot and nope. it also sounds like a million other westerns right it's the like, first man with no name you know it's fistful of dollars <laughs> it's the same yeah thing. exactly exactly yeah. it's it's sort of one of the, the quintessential ones yeah. um and then you know the, which was this... probably also called an anti-western at some point. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and then you have um you know if you want to look at it through this simplistic lens then you have this man who is being um pushed around by the forces that be you know these uh there's this corporate entity that um is too powerful and hires gunfighters to come to the town and kill him mm-hmm. you know there's a million other westerns right there mm-hmm. you know it, it's not so um abstract and upside down but the way that it's told and certain ideas um and we, we talked about it, the language i think the sound is an important part of why this is different but um it, it is still a western but it, it does a lot of things differently in a really compelling way yes i agree and i think um you mentioned deadwood and deadwood is definitely the like I don't need to know that this was a huge influence. This movie was a huge influence on Deadwood to know that this movie was a huge influence on Deadwood. Like I yeah. bet this is, this is David Milch's like number one inspiration for, for the, the show Deadwood. And you can even see it just watching the movie, that conversation really early on where the guy's talking about like, maybe I should shave my beard and just go with the mustache. Like that is Dan at the bar talking, yeah. you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And yeah. like, it is, um, that is really interesting. And just the, the building of a society like Deadwood obviously uh, focuses a lot more on the details of that society being, being built and moves a lot slower than this, than McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But you, the blueprint is, absolutely uh mccabe and mrs miller yeah and the uh, the ensemble and i think that this is something that is partially for sound design partially by the way dialogue is selected um you do get this uh this sense that these characters exist even when they're not on screen Mm -hmm. you know it's in, in a way that i know everything about this movie had been looked over and thought over a million times by not just Altman, but you know, it is just film. It's just such a collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. Um, But it does have this unpolished quality to it. And it takes a lot of work in an editing room and, you know, and people who do sound design to have people talk over each other in a way that you could still sort of make any sense of it, but you get this ambient room noise um, of dialogue, but it has that sense that, this isn't just McCabe and slash or Mrs. Miller's yeah. life. And that's what the only thing that we care about. Um, it has that sort of dreamlike uh, effect of some really important things are brushed over some big things or, or some unimportant things get a decent amount of screen time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that guy talks about his beard as much as 
some pretty important plot points get <laughs> as far as uh, a description. And I think that's um, that's that big world that we just sort of feel like we um, are coming in and out of. And it, it's not this polished thing where if you read a book on screenwriting, you know, if, if this dialogue doesn't push the plot forward, cut it out. That's not the rule that's being followed here. We have someone who's smart enough to follow the rules or smart enough to follow the rules when he thinks it's useful and to throw them out the window when it makes something more interesting. Yeah. Um, and well, Altman's window was always open to have things. thrown out of <laughs> Right. But that's, that's one of the things that's interesting here is that again, we've talked about how this is oversimplification, but the Western genre isn't known for that sort of no. experiment. You know, it, it's a hero's journey in, mm. in that, joseph campbell kind of way um that isn't this movie is not preoccupied with that you know you can definitely find it in there but it's it's not the it's not the it might be the story that's being told but it's not the the way they're choosing to tell it you know it might be the 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 liquid but it's not the bottle if you will Mm -hmm. um yeah and i think uh to go back to the idea of um not using or throwing things out the window, I guess. Uh, you know, this whole movie is made in a very confined, I mean, not confined space, but um, in the same area. And since they're shooting everything in the same area, um, they could shoot sequentially. And that's pretty much what they did, uh, almost top to bottom in the mo- for the whole movie, I think. And that allowed for um, Robert Altman, who hates screenplays in general, um, despite the fact that he works on a genre that is meant to produce screenplays and <laughs> yeah. Warren Beatty who likes to talk things to death or famously likes to talk things to death um, and run through ideas like they would just figure out what they were shooting the night before that they shot it and they would sort of you know they had a screenplay but um, to listen to people working on this movie talk about it specifically Vilmos Zygmunt um, asking Robert Altman at the end of the day or while they're, when they're watching dailies like what are we shooting tomorrow and Robert Altman saying I'll tell you tomorrow um <laughs> is uh that i think is the feeling that you're describing when you say that um it doesn't have that sort of linear there's no there's no like nothing is stuck in the ground permanently in this movie you know and you can get that in the sense from the way cameras move even though they don't move as much as they would in the long goodbye uh, a couple years later um zygmunt and and altman's next collaboration um but it like you don't see a lot of zooms in westerns or in serious westerns you don't see a lot of uh pans to this to this degree like pans and zooms sorry you do see a lot of pans in westerns um and it's just sort of that all of that like movement that just doesn't feel like it exists in a western and i think that combined with the sort of dreamlike vibes of the uh visuals to the point where you know they're using a fog filter a lot of the time to make the image look foggier. Um, I heard an actor talking about how he just uh, Zygmunt just grabbed one of Julie Christie's like prop stockings and put it over the lens in one shot, and um, <laughs> which just seems absurd. But just to, apparently that softened the image somehow. Um, and all of these little little things like the way the blue looks when she's walking across the bridge. I don't I don't know that I've ever seen a blue look quite like that in another movie, and it's just it's that sort of experimental feeling um, in a genre that 
typically doesn't feel experimental and it, it does really shine through not necessarily to the detriment of the movie but you never really know where you are i don't really know how much time passes through this movie they don't explain what has changed from scene to scene there are no cues for you to latch on to and yeah. um and that sort of allows it to exist in this weird sort of in-between space where we know there's probably going to be an ending to this movie you know like this we're probably building to something um but it's just never the movie never gives you any clarity as to what it is building towards you know it's just like it's a town it's like we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we'll see what happens you know it's just sort of this formless thing that you just sort of have to experience and uh get where you get you know yeah no i I think you're really right about that and there's a, I think there's a ton of things that play into that. And I love when, um, you know, between sound design and set design and, uh, you know, when every, when a bunch of different facets of filmmaking come together to achieve the same thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's always my favorite thing. And I know that's very sort of open-ended and abstract, but I think this movie does so much of that so well. Um, I love how present like nature is, you know, there's still just, we've talked about the weather a bit, but, just the trees and snow or rain. Um, it just feels like this town exists in a place. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't exist on a soundstage somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about that this is very much uh, Vancouver and Squamish and, you know, real places. Um, but, the you know, it's just on the edge of society is still nature, is still the natural world. And I think that makes it feel very sort of lived in and that there's just a constant struggle to live in a place like that mm-hmm. uh 120 years ago or whatever this is exactly um well yeah sorry that... just to cut you off there for a second that's another way that it sort of subverts the idea of the western i think this movie just takes place later than most westerns do you know like by deck by a couple of decades you know so yeah oh yeah, no, yeah. i think it's I, I i see it's either 1901 or 1902 but yeah once you're into the 20th century you're already outside of that the sort of tail end of what's expected as the western window yeah. when you think of it um so that's interesting to me um and yeah the 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 fact that it's the pacific northwest i think is something that uh, still kind of throws you off mm-hmm. um we get the the steam engine which i think is just this it stands out uh you know we can see all the um citizens of the town looking at it very you know very shocked by this yeah. though it was uh something extremely new um and yeah I, I just think that these characters who you it's hard to really place a lot of these people like even Sheehan uh you don't know if he's a good person or a bad mm-hmm, person mm-hmm. for a really long time and it's never quite clear um, well, and the, and the way that he's set up is just sort of, um, you know, not adversarial, but like standing slightly in opposition to what McCabe is asking for at the beginning. You just kind of assume, oh, this is going to devolve, you know, like <laughs> this yeah. will turn into like a, a real honest to God uh, problem between men over time. And it just doesn't really. You know, yeah, they just no, he, live in the town together and have to deal with each other. Yeah, and maybe it's because I watched Deadwood so much, but you think he's going to be a swear engine? Yeah. You know, he, he's he's the, he's the saloon owner who would put his thumb on the scale and you know be the uh, the antagonist to whoever we're going to follow more closely through the story, mm-hmm. and that's not it either. Um, 
and even the sort of central moral struggle that I think we would look for um, with a protagonist like this. McCabe is, you know, I touched on this earlier, is being um, unfairly manipulated by this big business, you know, this this mining, this holding company. Um, they try to buy him out, and when that doesn't work, they send someone to kill him. Mm-hmm. And there's that interlude with the lawyer where it sort of touches on something moral, you know, that you there's some, some talk about the American spirit and, you know, the the little guy and all that, but McCabe only cares because it's his stuff. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's his money. <laughs> there's no really valiant um, heroics that you see that he wants to save the town for any noble reason. You know, we get on his side, but there isn't this moral grandstanding that he's doing this for the right reasons. He's doing it for his reasons. Yeah. Right? So, um, I think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. I do think that he actually... I th- Sorry, I think... I think a lot of times when people say they're taking a stand for small business against monoliths, I think a lot of times it's a little bit of both and they don't recognize the second side. And I think that is probably true of Robert Altman and his uh, <laughs> his opposition to corporations in general. It's like, well, somebody had to fund this movie, you know, like uh, you, and, yeah. and you're making money for people like you can you can sort of uh, you can spit in their face all, all you want. And we can we can call it a triumph. But, you know. We're t- we're talking about this this property that uh, somebody still owns fifty years ago, and I guess they're not making any money from us, but somebody's uh, somebody's still making money off of this movie. But um, I do think in his heart, in McCabe's heart, he does think that it's sort of like it is a greater good thing, and um, he. But the real reason why he thinks it's the greater good is because the greater good is helping him, um, right? But- and I think that there is something of the capitalists like if you look out for yourself that is kind of a central part of the american spirit Mm -hmm. you know by by having a society where people can having an economic system where people can fairly protect their own things Mm -hmm. is good because it allows everyone to protect their own things and everyone if everyone's protecting their own things and not being pushed around um that's obviously for the greater good so i i think there is some truth there that i i agree i agree so um, my question is, because this is something that I don't really have uh, my head wrapped around, like, why doesn't um, McCabe continue working with the lawyer? Is it just purely like time runs out and he because I know it seems like pretty soon after he meets with the lawyer is when we get to the the finale. Or does he decide to not work with the lawyer, you know, because he seems pretty fired up when they're in the office together. Yeah. And even when he doesn't he come back and um still sort of he's still optimistic about that but then takes the different path i am not really sure i think that um yeah i i could not uh, get inside his head and tell you but it, it does seem like maybe he might feel that this is something he has to do for himself yeah and even with the odds stacked against him um maybe there is some of that frontier spirit and individualism that um going to the nearest big city and find someone to solve this through media spin mm-hmm. um not spin necessarily but uh isn't isn't the way he would like this problem to be yeah. solved or maybe not the most rewarding way for it to be solved but yeah. he, they they leave it as such a mystery what he really it, if he is the one who killed somebody and if he does have um 
a violent past. And I think they do walk this really interesting line where he walks in at that opening scene and finds the back door and gets the table with the uh, tablecloth over it and starts uh, dealing cards and really through his charisma um, really sort of runs this, but you do definitely see there's, that's a bit of a facade. You know, you, you do see these moments of weakness. You do see him talking to himself and then you see him come up to the gunfighters that have been hired and obviously he's outnumbered, but um He's not the man with no name. You know, he, he is not this uh, unmovable object with a, a quick draw that never experiences fear. That's that's made clear. Mm-hmm. So, yes. So to to put a button on the, the lawyer thing, I think what happened because what happens is he has that meeting with the lawyer. Then he goes and has that apologetic conversation with uh, Constance. And then I'm pretty sure it's the next morning when the finale begins. <clears throat> so um, I think what happens is he maybe he pushes back against the idea of using another institution, you know. And um, like you said, he just sort of has to fend for himself. And that's sort of where he um, he comes comes back to. And the other thing is we've seen him make so many bad decisions at this point or just not be like his first impulse not being a good choice. And maybe he's just sort of. Um, afraid to make that decision to sort of like leap into something else like that um, mm-hmm. and just sort of retreats back to the, the town that he knows where he's more comfortable um, but uh, yeah and I think the my uh, going back to, to what you were saying about whether or not he actually killed Bill Roundtree I think the movie pretty clearly I think when that Derringer comes out at the end um, I think that's like yeah Bill Roundtree died, died by McCabe's hands and I think that we only learn that so late is because um, if this movie has an arc to me about McCabe specifically, that arc is somebody wanting to change their life, uh, wanting to sort of rebuild their life, you know, um, to be a different person because, you know, we get the beginning of this movie is um, Warren Beatty, McCabe, just riding in town like in so many other westerns and going to the saloon like he said um when he's sitting at that table as the card game starting out and Sheehan saying to him are you the the gunfighter McCabe and he's just not answering he's not answering and then or sorry he says are you are you McCabe are you McCabe and then he says are you the gunfighter McCabe and he doesn't answer the first couple times he just sort of deflects it when somebody says he's a gunfighter that's when uh McCabe says businessman businessman you know and like this very it's like almost impulsive like he can't he feels so strongly that he wants to change his life that he has to correct somebody he has to give himself away yes he is McCabe but he's a businessman he's not a gunfighter you know and I think and I think the movie from that point I mean for the entirety is just him um trying to change who he is by instead of uh tearing things down instead of killing people um building something up like building a town building a society and and you know every room that he walks into in the early parts of this movie basically until until Constance shows up he's kind of in charge just by the nature of his Warren Beattiness I guess <laughs> you know like yeah. people just listen to him and I think the the finale is about um him like him us learning that like you're your past catches up no matter what it catches up to you in some capacity. And, um, just because you 
you wanted to stop being a gunfighter doesn't mean you're never going to be in a gunfight again you know yeah that you just can't outrun that yeah no i i think that's right yeah and also Um, like the idea that uh leaving leaving the gunfighting ring and moving into uh business doesn't necessarily mean that you're safe you know yeah because the corporations will shoot you too yeah yeah no for sure and moving into the uh (laughs) <laughs> the business of gambling and prostitution might not uh, get you out of the world of violence either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but I, I think that you're right. I think that this movie and knowing what we know about Altman um, and Beatty, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, yeah. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't preclude big business from uh, misdeeds or violence or, uh, you know, willing to stoop to the level of um, a violent criminal. If it, helps the bottom line in an mm-hmm. important way mm-hmm. yeah. yeah uh one thing i did want to point out earlier when you were talking about uh this being shot in a in a linear manner um i was reading that they were able to just sort of build the town you know build the set as the as mccabe would be building the town you know mm-hmm. it's it's just getting more populated and that things are getting um you know bigger and expanding and I, I don't know if that just sounds like that's a really charming, cool place to work or <laughs> um, if that sort of somehow feeds into the that energy of this movie. And you know, speak about Beatty's politics maybe a little bit, uh, that it's a lot of draft dodgers who mm-hmm. came to Canada to, to work on this and uh, were able to just dress in period costume and mm-hmm. work and build on the set. Um yeah, there's a there's a uh, interview like EPK. I don't even know if they would have been called EPK in the '70s, but that was um, I was watching on the Criterion Extra Features. It's like this 10 minute segment of behind the scenes footage from the set of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and they're having they're doing an interview with a guy who just like is talking about how he's like, yeah, well, I moved up here, and uh, first thing I did was I built my house. Uh, second thing I did was I, I built my chair that I'm sitting in right now. <laughs> and, oh, man. And it's it's the tree trunk with, like, um, and he just sort of kept a little bit of, of it going, like, an extra foot up for his back, you know? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, and he's just sitting there, like, talking about working on the set. He's like, yeah, and uh just wake up and I work and then I, I like sitting and sitting around in the evenings with the crew and chatting it up. And it's just, it, it's so interesting. And I do also think that um, the, I think the energy of someone or a, a collection of people who uh, are all in one, one place. I mean, this is filmmaking, but even um, this seems to be that, but like, turned up to 11 yeah yeah um where it's sort of like you're in one location um and you're building it you're building the town and it's just sort of like creates this it it is a a very stupid way to describe it but it's like last two weeks of college and everybody's working on their final project together you know and that is that is the energy of filmmaking and that is a weird a really weird bond that you can't really describe and um i have never experienced the filmmaking experience of it but i can tell you that like one day one long day on set by the end of the day there's like a weird bond between human beings because it yeah. works very hard. And, um, and that's just a, and you'll never see half those people again, but it, it is, it is just this, this weird feeling. And now imagine that for 
I don't know, it's the seventies. They're probably shooting for three months, you know, like it's, uh, it's really impressive. And, and the idea that, um, if it was anybody's idea, I think it was Robert Altman's to start shooting before the town was finished building. And I think that's a, that is a really cool little nugget that when I found it, I was like, oh, I hope this isn't like a, a well-known thing because this is a really cool thing. And of course it's a well-known thing. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, it's probably like the fourth line of the Wikipedia page. Or <laughs> right. But when we, when we talk about this is a movie where you imagine these characters, you know, as I said, through the sound design of people talking and you kind of grabbing snippets, but you know, someone's, you're trying to make sense of who McCabe is to these people, but someone's still asking Laura what's for dinner. And, you know, you can hear that and it means mm. nothing. It's, it's, it's irrelevant, but it's, it, but it's not just, um, the white noise to fill out a, a, a scene where there's more than three people in a room, um, that there's just constantly lives happening. And this is, we're, we're trying to piece together one to two people's part in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to hear that that expanded to uh, something bigger, like that, to that that expanded to the whole idea of building these sets and people living there and working on it. Um, that's that's something that comes across on screen and, and works really well for telling a western differently. But that that it has this entire macro element to it, I think, is I, I don't know how that energy shows up on screen, but it, as the totality I find that so fascinating and I think that um when McCabe's speaking to himself you know when he's very frustrated he, he kind of talks to himself a few times but when he says I've got poetry in me mm-hmm. you know that part yep um I, I think he like all of us you know you feel like you're always the center of the story um but everyone's sharing one big story right and that's it's everyone's living in one place and everyone knows each other's business and <laughs> yeah. um you know they're, they're so isolated their lives are shared in such a profound way uh just by the nature of the the time and the the industry of the town um and i think that that he, he's he's saying you know i i have all this interiority to me and i can't quite ex- dis- get it all across to you and you know, speaking about Mrs. Miller, um, but it's everyone's world, you know, like he, he does feel like he's at the center of it and that no one understands him and that he has so much going on, but everybody in that town feels that way. He's just making a lot of money. So people probably look at him a bit Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. and, you know, he has a bowler hat, so he's, he's fancy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's really central to what this movie is, is that, uh, you know, whether it's something interesting, like the, production and the the sound design but i think so much of this movie is about people existing in one space and that we don't have one person we have one location but um everyone's sort of struggling to define their role within that and that's a really interesting story and it's it, it comes up in different genres but i think this was a really interesting way to do it in a western yeah no for sure um and uh, just well to uh talk about warren Beatty really briefly about the i mean not we've been talking about him for 20 minutes but um <laughs> yeah. uh but the way that um he navigates this sort of like um as you said not being sure if mccabe is the guy who killed the round tree um and the way that he navigates the guy being the person who runs the town but also being wrong a lot of the time um i think his his performance is really interesting 
in that way. And he's giving a very warm Beatty performance because like, as we talked about on the parallax view, there are just like, he's, it's a combination of like, so he's, he's so famous that it's just sort of like, you, you can't, you have to stop yourself from calling him Warren Beatty every time you refer to him, even when he's playing a character like McCabe, whose character's name is literally in the title of the movie and should yeah. be very easy for me to remember. Um, but they, he, his, his Warren Beatty-ness just sort of takes over everything. But I think um, the this sort of like in-between space that he has to navigate between being in charge and um, really like pushing this town, at, at least for the beginning parts of this movie like really getting it on its feet um that balanced with how he plays um his scenes where you know he's not right and he's not right a lot of the times in this movie and he can't he can't like show that he knows that he's not right like he can't vocalize it but you can kind of see it on his face a lot of the times especially when he's talking to um constance who is uh who's Julie Christie, who's also fantastic in this movie. But there's just this weird, there's just something indescribable about his performance in this movie that I think is so important. And also I think maybe this is playing into the sort of the anti-Western um, kind of vibe. It's just, he's very modern. Like he he's not changing anything about how he acts in 1971 for this movie that takes place in 1901 or 1902, right? Yeah. It's just, there's there's something modern about everything that he does. and um, And it just fits with this movie. You know? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, modern, like 1971 acting style. Modern. Yeah. Yeah. And what you said about him being wrong a lot of the time, like he fucks up the bargaining thing. Mm-hmm. He, he talks about how well he's doing it mm-hmm. and he's fucking it up. Yeah. <laughs> and he, if he knew, he would have taken the money and ran. And it's all um, in his reaction shots when, when, uh, what all, everything I'm saying is when him and Constance are talking. It's in his reaction shots to things that she is doing. Like the biggest ones are when she's eating those four, that four eggs and stew and all of these things. But uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's when he's like, really like, who is this woman? You know? Um, but yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Like he, <laughs> he does screw up a lot. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and we haven't even really talked about this. And it's funny how sort of back burner this is, but I didn't know a ton about this movie going into it. It was called McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is a western and this is going to be this love story is going to be a pretty central part of it um and you can argue that it it is the emotional core to it and i will hear that argument and i'll agree with parts of it for sure but you can convince me the rest um but that's not you know if, if you just did a second by second analysis about what is the most important part of the scene that you're watching right now their relationship is six percent you know what i mean it's, i mean their working relationship is really important right yeah yes for sure but it's not um but just by screen time alone you know what mm-hmm. i mean it's not that and that's part of what i was saying about this movie um not just holding your hand and telling you the things that matter and sometimes small things take up a disproportionate amount of time and yep. sometimes big things sort of just get um kind of passed over and i don't mean that negatively just that's it's not the, the way they choose to tell this story yeah um it's not what altman wanted to shoot that day <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah I, I, it's it's fascinating that that's the title of this movie and sort of represents um not a huge percentage of the screen time but i think it does obviously some really huge things um him just continuing to have to pay her and him talking about 
um, talking to himself about the nature of this relationship and the 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 longing he seems to have for her and the sadness that she seems to have without having a ton of like she has her opium use scenes but she doesn't have these big emotional breakdown scenes she doesn't talk about how horrible her life has been or her upbringing um no the only time but she it's gets... a sad sad movie oh yeah for sure oh yeah 100 um, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that but like a, a, you know the the only time she really has um where she even really raises her voice in this sort of passionate way is when she's like no you had you should have taken that deal you know like you're gonna die you know and um the the arc of constance and um throughout this movie is just knowing that she's right and just constantly being proven right you know like and not being able to do anything about it because of uh her place in society like uh mccabe says to her like no you can't make that deal like you can't go do that like that's just not what you do you know yeah that's what mccabe is for that's why you come after the ampersand, you know, because that's where society puts you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, no, for sure. She's, yeah. she's right about everything. You know, she, she absolutely reads it perfectly about the things he's not doing correctly. And, um, there's a moment where it seems that he, when he, she sort of first dresses him down, there's a moment where it looks like he wants to start arguing back and just realizes he has nothing yeah. like that. She is, she is just so much smarter than him. Definitely. At least in this subject matter mm-hmm. um that he kind of you know you, you see his ego get a little bruised and him want to sort of puff his chest out and assert his male dominance but she just she really has him mm-hmm. <laughs> there's nothing that there's nothing he can say um yeah i think the 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 ampersand is important um maybe it was ebert who points that out but i i'm just it was another film critic but i'm not trying to uh say that this was an original thought of mine just mm-hmm that that's such a business term you know like to have the ampersand it's not that it's these two people who have this close relationship it's these two people who have a mutual interest in making money and they find it with each other Mm -hmm. um and that there is he, he has this seemingly deep uh desire to be loved by her and that she uh does not reciprocate those feelings and we don't I mean, feel free to disagree I don't think we are ever given a reason why I don't know if she's just not addressed to him if she's you know we, we she obviously has this opium addiction I don't know if she's too depressed or doesn't think enough of him or herself you know there's a million reasons why she doesn't feel a romantic uh, connection to this person but it I don't find that ever really gets spelled out I find that really compelling Oh, a hundred percent. Um, I, I agree. And I don't think I have a better answer than you do. I think that a lot of, um, a lot of this movie is, uh, characters thinking one thing and then trying to convey that and then conveying it in like a, an incorrect way. And I think a lot of the time, I, and when I say that, I'm, I mean, specifically McCabe, um, or in a way that doesn't work out positively for him. And with, uh, with Constance, I think it's more, like we said, she's just always right. And I think the things where, um, I think the thing that trips up, you know, in the language of movies, characters like that sometimes is when you're always right, the thing you're not certain of, maybe you're le- uh, like, that is throws you for a real loop. And uh, 
and you're so uncertain of it that it just sort of remains un- unsaid because you just keep thinking about it, thinking about it because you don't want to say something that's wrong, you know? Right. Because mm-hmm. she is so right all of the time. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and it's just the... And she's the driving force of so much of the movie because of it, you know? Yeah, and the time period and setting does not allow her to, you know, make the most of um, her intelligence and her confidence and yeah. how, how how good she is at what she does um well, yeah she and i think still has to rely on men for some things because for, of the the nature of the economy for sure and i and i think the thing that um sort of shows the difference between um what mccabe can do by himself and what mccabe can do with constance is the you know just the progression of the first 45 minutes to an hour of this movie right when when McCabe arrives in town, you know, it's so depressing looking like it's raining. It's just people standing alone. Um, and then, you know, as and he he basically like ships up or sorry, m- makes things in that version of the town better. Right. And <clears throat> but then um, he needs Constance to come along and convince him that, no, you should have a bathhouse and then you should have uh uh, a brothel that requires you to take a bath to go in so that people have to use the bathhouse. And so you don't get clapped up in a yeah. week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and explaining the many, uh, many reasons why having a woman running your brothel is helpful. Um, and just like, and again, I, these are, these are early, early points in their conversations and their relationship. And, and again, you can see it on his face. He's just like, he's simultaneously saying, who is this woman? And I know she's right. But I yeah. don't necessarily <laughs> know that I can admit that out loud. Um, and, you know, and he says to Sheehan early on, he says, uh, I came here to get away from partners. And she very quickly makes, um, explains to him why he needs a partner for, yeah. for this town to continue progressing. Because there's still an upper limit. There's still uh, people stabbing, uh, like a, a, one of the prostitutes stabbing uh, one, of her, one of her clients um, early on. And they're still just in individual tents, right? And, um, you know, it's just a a level of protection and just continuing to upgrade society, the small society that they're building, you know, just sort of make it trying to make it safer and just better, you know, and also take a goddamn bath. My God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's only so many male ideas that can push a society forward before proper hygiene comes in when he's like (laughs) drinking by himself and talking about how he's not going to take a bath i'm like this isn't the line to draw in the sand like (laughs) come on you'll have better hills to die on yeah. in an hour and 10 minutes of screen time yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, it is very funny and uh i think we have talked a lot about drunk acting in this uh podcast over the years but when he grabs at that whiskey bottle and it kind of almost falls to the ground but he still still catches it that is grade a drunk acting yeah. absolute perfection because it's the kind of accident that like He's probably not drunk when he's doing that, but it, that's absolutely an accident, like the misgrab of the bottle. But just the way everything works out is just uh, perfect. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, yeah, and Robert Altman, to my understanding, has some under has some experience drinking alcohol, so he probably <laughs> saw it and enjoyed it. And maybe some with a raw egg in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's. Uh, 
Hey, let's let's figure out how to make Rocky grosser. Let's let's pour those eggs yeah, in whiskey. A double whiskey. How about mm. that? Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that I think, uh, continuing on that thread of what we're talking about is just sort of the, this is something that's never really discussed, but it's the idea of like McCabe's arrive or arrivals into town versus departures from town. And, um, what, like I said, when McCabe shows up, the town is a certain way. When Constance shows up, they make the town or the society a little bit better and, and their business better for sure. Um, and then you sort of look at the departure right and the finale of this movie i mean just incredible stuff like the one i love a movie in snow um movies don't take place in snow because it makes your life a lot harder uh but uh but i love it when filmmakers will do it and again like so much of this movie weather wise that was by chance um that it happened to snow for nine consecutive days or whatever they needed um and but that departure, you know, you get these, we get people alone, right? We get them back to uh, how they were when, or our, our main characters back to how they were when they came into town. Like McCabe is on his own fighting, uh, fighting these gunfighters. And um, Constance, we find out eventually is not on her own physically, but she's on her own um, because she's smoking opium and just sort of staring at that little vase or whatever. Um, yeah. And... While that is happening, um, you get the church, the church fire that is set off by the gunfight, um, by extension. But you get everybody in the town and the society that those two people have helped to uh, bring together. You get them all working together to put out this fire, and it it's just this this really interesting thing. Um, again, not not commenting too much, but it's just sort of this is. I think the movie is implying that these two people have sort of built this world where that fire can be put out in that way by these people working together in a sort of selfless way that um, may not have existed. I don't know, 20 weeks ago or however long past, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you yeah. know, and, um, but I think the, the uh, presence of McCabe and uh, Constance both alone at the, the end of the movie is just, um, I mean, it's really sad, but it's uh, it's it's an interesting, just an interesting uh, contrast with what is happening in the finale with the gunfight and the and the fire and just the the uh, contrast of snow versus fire, like the loud sounds of fire and people trying to put it out and the very quiet of uh, snowy, windy gunfight um, and yeah, just the contrast of snow and fire. It's interesting. Yeah, no, so it's it's really wild because it's it's edited so. Um, precisely on these points. Okay, so first, uh, just another subversion that um, High News is a great example because it's one that's brought up that we've brought up already, but is um, this is such a trope of everybody knows about the big gunfight. Everybody in the town, you know, watches from the windows or these characters or these figures are so famous in their town that when they come to duel, you know, it's it's at noon. Uh, it's at the OK Corral or the the main drag. You know what I mean? It's this thing that is really obvious in public, and everyone watches. And that's not the case with this one. This is this this go this gunfight goes on basically with nobody noticing except the four people involved and mm. the priest, I suppose, yeah. who notices 
in the wrong way. But even he doesn't uh, really know what's happening. You know? Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're right. Because he has no um, real reason to like in that situation, McCabe, even when he says, hey, I need that. I'm in a gunfight, <laughs> you know, or they're trying to kill me or whatever. He, the pr- priest could just think he's just lying to me to get his gun back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, for sure. So another subversion is that even when they do the big gunfight, which is a part of the genre, they're doing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. It, the, the town is involved. And I think as spectators, we're kind of put in their shoes where this is something, as I said, everyone's life, everyone's life is still happening, no matter what the mm-hmm. most typical Western activities that are happening are, you know, these people still have other things to worry about. Um, and similarly, it's not let's meet up at this time in this place and then draw our guns and then see who is the faster or more accurate shooter. Mm-hmm. It's a game of cat and mouse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 really not this macho dude standing up to each other and um, pulling phalluses out of their holsters <laughs> and taking each other down. It's um, <laughs> it, it's hiding and and, and moving and. Um, it just really not that straightforward sort of romanticized glamorous gunfight that mm-hmm. we, we've come to expect from the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of people getting shot in the back or shot by people they can't see. You know, it, it's really not that valor that uh, we, we come to associate with that. Um, and McCabe just tripping in the snow. You know, we, we've talked about that snow, which is uh, counterintuitive when we we think of it but mm-hmm. people falling down and stepping in puddles um and even the the gunfight before that the one on the bridge again just wildly cowardly just convincing a man to touch his gun so you yeah. can shoot him in i'm gonna say a clear conscience but i don't think that guy <laughs> feel, feels like he had a clear conscience about that um but the, like, i mean he a... might feel like he has a clear conscience about that he's he's wrong <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> I, I don't think he's concerned about his conscience no, no, no. <laughs> yeah um and and so yeah so there's this gunfight that it's so different than what we come to expect with high noon being a really good example of that or the okay corral in the many ways that that's been told mm-hmm. um and this idea that the town misses it because they're coming together to save the church, which is obviously this symbol of good in the world. You know, I, I don't, I don't find this movie to be anti-religious at all. Um, there's a beautiful shot of when the priest is climbing the steeple and putting the cross on. Um, you don't see the priest ever act in a negative way. Um, I, I just don't feel like religion's vilified here. I don't think it's, shown to be the answer or you know that society fails when they lose their moral center by rejecting religion by any means but it doesn't seem like that's something alton's really interested in um i agree it, see it, yeah it seems more just like a community than it does christianity and, yeah and as you're saying about them any bi- any of those buildings could have been on fire and they would have reacted the same way yeah yeah, yeah that's the sense i get so but I just find it so interesting that the churches that fire starts because of this gunfight and it's ign- the the gunfight is ignored because of the fire and just when um, the fire is being put out is as this wraps up like the, the, those those edits are just so perfectly timed for making this gunfight a totally um, a total non-issue for the 
members of this town. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just didn't know if what if, if it's just a sense of community that they're getting at because mm-hmm. what does it say that um, he sort of he he dies alone while this successful you know cooperative effort by the society is carried out so what happens is and um so if you look at the movie before that uh keith carradine gets shot on the bridge um Mm -hmm. leading up to that for like 20 to 30 minutes um leading up to that the town is pretty ideal all things considered you know like things they're just kind of like running things and outside of the um business of mccabe maybe selling maybe not um, or refusing to sell there's nothing really going on. It's just everybody living their lives and um, McCabe and Constance's businesses are just doing pretty well. Um, and then after they, you know, uh, McCabe rejects this um, Sears and whatever the other guy's name was. Um, and that, that older guy says, I've been doing this for 17 years. I shouldn't be set out on these, these missions. And he's just fed up. He's like, I'm leaving. Snipe hunt. Yeah, exactly. Um, send in the killers. But like what happens there is the uh, violence returns to town. The violence that um, existed, you know, before this uh, furthering of their, their small society. And that violence is sort of brought back in by by the growing of the business, right? And what comes in as the the uh, representative of that violence is the big, bigger business, you know? Like, they're there because uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller have built successful businesses and now they want to buy it, but they won't be sold to. So now they have to send in the big guns, right? Um, but they are still representatives of money, you know, and, and uh, just the continued growth of the society. So when they get shot and they die, um, as you were saying, while the fire is being put out, this is just another fire that has to get put out in a society. Like these these things are just going to keep coming as you build your society. There are going to keep being issues. There's never just going to be the 30 30 minute period of this movie that's just like relatively ideal doesn't extend for 60 years, you know? And there's just going to continue to be uh, threats to your society and all these things. And I think what the movie is saying is um, individualism is the way to beat one problem. It's not the way to beat, like, a big problem that is uncontrollable, like fire, which is, like, elemental, you know? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. That's a lot of words to explain a simple thing, but I think that's that's kind of what... if, If that scene has an idea that combines those two things i think that's it yeah no i think that's right um so i want to talk really briefly about addiction and then just the ending for uh constance um just because i think i think it's really interesting that they both have addictions to different substances um i mean mccabe has a addiction that probably isn't even considered an addiction at the time you know like it's just it's just alcohol we're in it's 1902 what else are we gonna do you know yeah um and he just kind of does silly things like like turning like pushing that offer away a little bit too uh too aggressively when sears proposes it to him initially but it doesn't necessarily seem like something that he wouldn't do well sober you know he just does it in a louder way you know and um because when he's explaining these things to constance the next day he's still kind of explaining it the same way you know and yeah. the thing with uh constance and her opium is uh, because as we pointed out um 
and this is again credit to julie christie's performance because i think this is a really difficult line to navigate throughout the whole movie but um she smokes opium because she knows she's right and she can do nothing to stop it right and she's just continually proven right even to the point where she says no you should have taken that deal they are going to kill you and they kill him um and again he wins the small battle but what's the point he's dead right and i think that um one the reveal of constance in that opium den is just done really well like once once the gunfight is done and we get this sort of pan of that that part of town and and um the door is opening and it starts to zoom in and we realize that's that's constance and um then we're cutting back between constance and mccabe both alone um but that zoom on on one of the last i guess the second last shot just keeps going closer and closer and closer to um to constance's eye and like so close that even starts to lose focus a little bit we get this like weird bouquet in her eye that perfectly matches with the next shot but the last shot of this movie is the first pov shot in the whole movie right and we're seeing things through her eyes and um it's just like she's the driving force of so much of this movie in that she says things then they happen and she's proven right and she said mccabe was gonna die uh he dies she's proven right right and and the whole thing that she couldn't do throughout the whole movie was uh get mccabe to see what she was saying or or do um what she was suggesting because she knew she was right and he probably knew that she was right um but, but refused to admit it in this case but um and then that combined with her her opium use it's just sort of she's looking at this vase but she's just seeing nothing you know and and that's where mccabe is as well it's just like he's fine <laughs> you know she just needs to to dull her own rightness so that she can continue <laughs> to exist you know and it's just like it's yeah. so sad and so depressing you know and i just i th- can't think of another movie where the last shot of the movie is the first pov shot in the film you know it's just this really interesting thing yeah no i i that, that's right i can't think of one for sure and i think um yeah, she just has this lack of agency, despite being so smart and being very good at her job. Um, it does seem like the only joy she's left with is that drug use where you're looking at something and that immediate thing right in front of you is very interesting and compelling. Mm-hmm. And that's all she has yeah. to, you know, um, do much for her emotionally. And yeah, I think that's a... a really powerful use of a pov shot if, yeah. if that's if this is a movie about uh your experience and the way that it bumps up against other people's this is the one thing that she has is <laughs> these brief moments of um personal interest in something like that because she's on drugs and can forget everything else yeah exactly and and as the credits roll and the uh music sort of fades away the last thing we're seeing well this image is still on screen is still that that vase but um the sound is stripped down to just wind and even over the warner brothers logo or whatever that the production logo is at the end um right up till the end of the movie you're hearing the sounds of wind and it's just this this loneliness that just can't be stopped you know like a wind wind like the sound of a loud wind never never makes you feel like oh cool i'm safe you know like and uh and i just think that um 
you know, with Altman, so much comes back to the sound and that that's a relatively small sound detail that I think is just sort of going to, is just suggesting that what, what we have watched happen is just going to continue happening and there's no way of stopping it. So. Yep. Cool. 100%. Well, we can stop this podcast. So uh, thank you for listening to the MacGuffin Men and check back next time.